I'm glad to see everybody in the classroom tonight. It's 7 o'clock, and so we are going to um, start. And I hope we're going to go through this a little bit quickly because there's going to come a time <clears throat> in the near future when we're going to be going to one hour rather than... Um, rather than two hours. Okay. So this Parsha, but that's not right now. I'm just going to see how it's going to work out here. And I'll let you know. It's probably going to be end of February, beginning of March, when we're going to an hour. This is the first Parsha of the new month of Shvat. Um, Shvat is a month as all the months are connected to one of the tribes Shvat is connected to the tribe of Asher can everybody hear me okay okay great Shvat is connected to the tribe of Asher and very interestingly that we have this story of Inshmot in Exodus in which we have a picture of redemption of what redemption is going to look like and Asher I know that it, Asher is not a tribe that we really think about that much but Asher is very much connected to redemption Shvat is connected to redemption it's a time when in uh, the middle of the month we have a holiday called Tubishvat. And it is the new year of trees. And on Tubishvat, we in Israel, we go out and plant new trees. Um, we have for like a little Seder, we'll have little dried fruit and nuts. It's something that we celebrate as a new beginning is coming. The first time we start to celebrate that, we start to look at that, is during the month of Shvat. And the tribe of Asher was located, its tribal territory was located in the very northern part of Israel, the very northern western part of Israel, right up against Lebanon and the Mediterranean Sea. And what they were known for was the olive trees, the olive oil that was produced in the tribal lands of Asher. And as each one of the tribes, each one of the months has significance for the syrups that are connected with them as well, the syrup that is connected to the tribe of Asher, interestingly, is the Sphera of the crown. Now, the crown is divided up into three parts. There's the crown of Torah, the crown of kingship, and the crown of priesthood. And the tribe of Asher is the crown of Torah. And the sense of the month is eating. Now, why would you say Torah and eating? Because you have this idea of what? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. But on the flip side of that tree of knowledge of good and evil is the tree of life. 
And the Torah is the tree of life. And so what do we want to do? And many times we see this in the prophets where Hashem says, take this scroll and eat it. And the prophet said, and it tasted like honey in my mouth. And this is the sense of Asher. So we have this um, idea in when on Tubishvat where we taste the different fruits of the trees. And it's an idea of trees and oil. Um, the blessing of Asher from Yaakov was uh, concerning him dipping his foot in oil. It was concerning him living well. And another thing that Asher's tribe was known for was the daughters of Asher were considered very beautiful. And they would many times marry into the tribe of Levi, into the Kohanim, uh, the families of the Kohanim. And even the high priest many times was married to a daughter of Asher. Uh, one of the most famous daughters of Asher was Serach. She was Serach Bat Asher. And Serach is a very important character, but we only get her story really in Midrash. She's a very important character. She was one of the 70 souls descended into Egypt and I was talking about how these 70 souls are connected each one has a name and they're connected to the 70 nations and the daughter of Asher the significance of the daughter of Asher is that when the brothers went back to their father and they had made a covenant between themselves an agreement a very of a strong agreement that none of them could break. And even Hashem was a partner in this agreement. That nobody could break this agreement. That nobody would ever say that Yosef was alive. Nobody would ever talk about it. No one would ever tell Yaakov the truth about this. So when they were going back home, they were discussing between themselves, what are we going to do? How are we going to how are we going to handle this and on the way they saw Sarah with her harp and so they told her you go and you sing to your grandfather and you tell him gently gently tell him that Yosef is alive and he is ruling in Egypt so she went and she sat and she strummed her harp and she sang to her grandfather and she was like humming, you know. And then she very subtly started to sing, you know, kind of making a chant of it. And then, you know, the words were going to Yaakov. And Yaakov was listening and he's like, oh how in the world and it's a beautiful music with a harp and it's giving him hope for the first time and when he realized oh Yosef Chai oh Yosef is still alive and he's ruling in Egypt suddenly after 17 years no after more than that what was it 13 years that Yosef has been missing that he has not seen Yosef it was it was 13 years, sorry. And the 
and the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of Hashem, had departed from Yaakov. He hears this from Sarah, her singing this, and the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of Hashem, came back to him. Where he was like dead before, he was revived. It's like he was resurrected from being dead. And so he blessed Sarah, but Asher, that she would never taste death. She would be alive. Always. She would always be alive. So, when all of the brothers died, and we're going to see this in tonight's Parsha and Be'era, all the brothers had died. Levi was the last one to go. There was only one person who was still surviving from the 70 souls that descended into Egypt. And that person was Serach Bat Asher. She was living the blessing of her grandfather. Now, one of the things that had happened was that there was a code given. The code was Pakad Pakadati. This was the code that Yaakov gave to the brothers by which they would know who was the Redeemer to come and take them out of Egypt. And so, the only one still living of those 70 souls, because of the blessing of her grandfather, was Sarah. Well, actually, Yochavit had also been born as they went through the gates, but she was a babe. So the only one who could remember this code was Sarah. So when Moshe came and he did the um, signs and gave the signs to the leaders of Israel. It was Sarah who said, yes, he is the one, because Moshe spoke these words. And it was Sarah who verified, yes, he's the one who's giving us the right code. And she said, he is the Redeemer. And later on, we're going to see her come back into the story. And if you would like... Here is the address. Can you see this little article I have here about Sarah? You can print this off for yourself. You can go and you can get this. And you can print it off for yourself. It's the whole story I wrote about Sarah. And she's a, an extraordinarily interesting character in the, in the Midrash. And... It, in order for us to really understand the whole story of the exodus from Egypt, we can't leave out Sarah. Sarah is a very, she's a beautiful, a beautiful part of it. And later when they were looking for the coffin of Yosef, and I'm going to talk about that when we get to it, Yosef made the brothers promise that they would take his bones out of Egypt and bury him in the land of Israel the only person alive who could remember where Yosef had been buried, where he, his coffin was, where the Egyptians had hidden it, was Sarah. 
And so there she came again with her memory of what was going on. And she went from the time that she went down into Egypt, then she went through the wilderness, the 40 years, the whole time, and she went back into Eretz Israel with the people of Israel. And we're told that she lived all the way into the time of David HaMelech, and then she went alive into Gan Eden. So it's an amazing, amazing story. She was a, an amazing character. So now we are on the Parsha of Vaira, and it starts in the sixth chapter, the second verse. Now, did everybody receive the email that I sent that had a little um, about the Parsha? Okay, good. Now we've been talking about the various ways that Hashem revealed Himself to the people of the world through His names. And here is another revelation of Hashem through His names. Now we can become confused by this because when we read in uh, the book of Genesis, we do see the name yud Yet, we're told that it is at the Exodus. It's at the time when the people of Israel become the people of Israel truly. Born out of Egypt, that Hashem truly becomes and reveals this name, yud That this is a name that is really associated with Israel as a nation because here he is going to say to them you will be my people I will be your God so starting with the second verse <clears throat> and God spoke and the word here is Elohim spoke to Moshe and said to him I am Yudhe and was so, even when I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov as the all-sufficing God, but had not become known to them as that which my name, Yudhe implies. So in other words, when he appeared to the patriarchs, he appeared to them and said, I am El Shaddai. This was another name. The foundation the Yesod of his attributes, the very foundation of his attributes, was a revelation that he gave to the patriarchs. But now he's appearing, and he is, in all of its sovereignty, giving this name that encompasses all of the names. And if you look at the Tree of Life, you will see that the apex of the Yud corresponds with the crown the crown of the tree of life and then you come down and the yud itself corresponds to chokhmah which is the wisdom you have on two sides chokhmah and bina wisdom and, and understanding and so you have the yud and the hay on either side there and then the vav is the torso with the six vav is numerically six and it's the six spherot that come underneath there. And then the last sphera of Malchut 
is the hay. And so all of those letters together are encompass the whole tree of life. That's one way that we see it. And it's also Yutevoke is the heart. And so we see it in two different ways. But when we see it comes through the it encompasses the entire tree of life. It encompasses all the attributes of Hashem. So this is the sovereign the expression of his sovereignty that he is the all sufficing one that he revealed himself to the patriarchs yes he is that he is Elohim who is the judge yes he is this but he is sovereign in a way that this yud that encompasses all of the spherot expresses and we have to understand something here that when we talk about the names of Hashem when we talk about the spherot which are the attributes of his character these are things that he created. They are not him. They are they are expressions of who he is as he created them to be. But when we look at when he appeared to Moshe at the burning bush and he said, He's saying, I will be what I will be. I will be whatever I will be. That really expresses more the essence. The essence of it's intangible. It's something we can't grasp. It's something that could always be changing. It's something that we can never say, ah, this is it. This is who he is. Because there's never that, like with a human being even, you have that where you don't always, you're not always able to pin it down. But with Hashem, it's even more so that you really can't put your mind around it. But as best we can, and this is the reason that He created the Spirit, this is the reason that He created His names, well, you have to understand that it's not like our names. It's, it's a little bit different. That He created His names in order to express to us something about His essence, something about his being something about how he's relating to the world and to us and so when he was relating to the patriarchs he was saying El Shaddai, I am all sufficing I am enough, die Shaddai also can be seen as being that is enough, but it's also almighty all sufficing, that he is enough And that was the way he appeared mainly to the patriarchs. And so they didn't really know him in this way of the yud that he was revealing now to the people of Israel as they're getting ready to become the nation of Israel. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their sojourning, as strangers where they sojourn and I have also heard the cry of distress of the sons of Israel whom the Mitzrites are holding in bondage and I have remembered my covenant and the covenant is that they will be a nation and that they will be a nation in the land that he will give to them and they will be a nation 
that will be priests of the Torah that he will give them. But they will know him in a way that will be unique. Unique among the nations. He has revealed himself throughout the Torah, throughout the book of Genesis, to the people before the patriarchs, to Adam, to Noah. He's revealed himself. But, and then to the patriarchs, he reveals himself in a, in a very special way, a new way. But now there's going to be a revelation through the nation of Israel and through what he's going to do for the nation of Israel that is showing himself in a whole new way to the entire world. Therefore, say to the sons of Israel, I am Yudhe I will bring you out from succumbing under the burdens of Mitzrayim. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you to myself as a people and I will be a God to you, Elohim. You will come to know that I am your God, Elohim. Elohechem. You will come to know that I am your God who brings you from succumbing under the burdens of Mitzrayim. And so he's telling them, I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you to myself as a people. These are the, the four things that he's telling them how he's going to rescue them not going to smash the burdens or he's, he's not going to make it where they can rise up under them he is going to bring them out he's not going to make it where they can save themselves he's not going to make it go away but he is going to redeem the people from these things he will be the redeemer the goel he will step up. So they've been aliens in this land. And they've been made to feel more like aliens in this land. And he's saying, where you were aliens, where you had no kinsmen, I will be your kinsman. You had no redeemer, no one to say, to take your part, to stand up for you, that will be me. I will be your redeemer, I will be your kinsman, and I will rescue you. I will take you out. And it's just a really beautiful thing. It's like when the prophets talk about when Hashem says, I looked for one who would stand in the gap and I saw no one, so I myself, with my own outstretched charm, how he came, he came and he was going to rescue the people. And it's showing the people of Israel also Hashem in a whole new way. It's showing the world, first of all the Egyptians, of course, Hashem in a whole new way, and it is a message to Egypt. It's not just Israel's the good guys and Egypt's the bad guys, and so I'm going to rescue Israel and I'm going to smash Egypt because I want to. It's not like that. Don't ever think of it as so simplistic. 
because Hashem was saying something very important and we have to understand that Hashem is ultimately the He is a giver of good and whenever He does anything it is for good we think about these plagues that are coming to Egypt and we would think well how would that be good for the Egyptians and we're going to talk about that because it is we need to understand this whole concept of yud that yes it's for the whole uh, tree of life but the one sphere that yud is the name associated with it is the sphere of compassion and so what is compassion? Let's just think about that for a moment. What is compassion? Just tell me, you know, if you want to write it in or if you would like to say it. What do you think compassion means? Anyone? Thinking of the other person, love and concern, right. Caring about your fellow man, that's right. All of those things are right. There's something else that compassion is. Sometimes there is nothing you can do to change the situation. There is absolutely nothing you can do. But you can be there. You can help that person by going through it with him. And that's what Hashem says. When you go through the fire, when you go through the water, I will be there. This is the compassion. And sometimes there are, we have to go through hard things. There are times when it's necessary for the growth of our soul, for the development of our soul, for the journey that we're on, for us to be able to get to where we need to get to within ourselves that we have to go through very very hard things and the compassion of is that we don't have to go through it alone so this is something that as we read about the plagues we need to see this we need to understand that there was a lot of things there were a lot of things going on here it wasn't just simply Israel's the good guys, Egypt's the bad guys, so I'm going to rescue Israel and I'm going to smash Egypt. It's not that simple. So he's giving the promises to the people of, of Israel and he's revealing to them that their destiny is to be a nation. And then I will bring you into the land concerning which I raised my hand to give it to Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I, Yudhevochet. Moshe spoke thus to Israel. But they did not hearken to Moshe because of impatience and because of the harsh bondage. It was so difficult. The slavery was so hard on them that they couldn't hear these words. They couldn't connect with them. And so all of the things that now Egypt is going to have to go through is as much for Israel, for them to see the rescue of Hashem, 
as it is for Egypt. And God spoke to Moshe, saying, Go there, tell it to Pharaoh, king of Mitzrayim, that he should send out the sons of Israel from his land. And Moshe spoke before God, saying, See, the sons of Israel did not hearken to me. How then will Paro hearken to me, who am of unpliant lips? Thereupon God spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, and commanded them concerning the sons of Israel, and concerning Paro, king of Mitzrayim, to bring the sons of Israel out from Mitzrayim. These are the heads of the fathers' houses, the sons of Reuven, Israel's firstborn, Hanuch, Palu, Hetzron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuven. Shimon's sons are Yamiel, Yamin, Ohad, Yakin, Sahar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the families of Shimon. And these are the names of Levi's sons in the order of their birth. Gershon, Kehat, and Merari. The years of Levi's life, 137 years. Now this is very important for us to read this here. And you notice that Levi is the only, besides Yosef, Levi is the only one of the brothers whose age at his death is given. And the reason that this is given here is because it was at after his death, when he was 137 years old, that the slavery began. It was not before that. All of the brothers had passed on before the slavery began. Gershon's sons, Levni and Shimai, according to their families, Kehat's sons, Amram, Yitzchar, Hebron, Uziel. In the years of Kahat's life, 133 years, Merari's sons, Machli and Mushi, these are the family of Levi, according to their descent. Amram took to himself his aunt, Yochevet, to wife, and she bore him Aharon and Moshe. The years of Amram's life, 137 years, the same as Levi's. Yitzchar's sons, Korach, Nefeg, and Zikri. Uziel's sons, Mishael, Etziphon, and Sitri. Aharon took to himself Elisheva, daughter of Aminadav, sister of Nachshon, to wife. She bore Nadav and Avihu, Eleazar and Itamar. Now, we see something very interesting here, and it's important when we notice the wives as well. Not just the, the names of the husbands, but also the wives. Because Aaron is the head, is the high priest. He's going to be the first high priest. Elisheva, his wife, is the sister of Nachshon. Now, Nachshon was the prince of what tribe? Does anybody know? Or remember? 
He was the prince of the tribe of Yehuda. And so Aaron married the sister of the prince of the tribe of Yehuda. So we see that the sons of Aaron, who will be the Kohanim, are descended from Aaron, who was chosen to be the high priest, and a daughter of the tribe of Yehuda. Very interesting, because Yehuda is the tribe that was chosen to be the kings. And so here you have, through the mother of, um, of these first sons born to Aaron, the first ones who are in line for the high priesthood, they are also from the tribe of Yehuda. So it's a very interesting connection there. Korah's sons, Asir, Elkanah, and Aviasaf, and these are the families of Kor- uh, Korahite branch. Eleazar, son of Aaron, took to himself one of the daughters of Putiel to wife, and she bore him Pinchas. These are the heads of the Levites' fathers' houses according to their families. These are Aaron and Moshe, to whom God said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Mitzrayim according to their hosts. These are the ones who spoke to Paro, king of Mitzrayim, to bring out the sons of Israel from Mitzrayim. These are Moshe and Aaron. This was on the day upon which Hashem spoke to Moshe in the land of Mitzrayim, when Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, I, Hashem, or here it would be Elohim, speak to Paro, king of Mitzrayim, everything I will say to you. Moshe said before Hashem, Look, I am of unpleasant pliant lips how will Paro hearken to me now he is saying I Elohim say speak to Paro in the name of Elohim he is saying the judge that the the Paro that Egypt is being judged in the courts of heaven and this is the verdict so the verdict is coming through the name of Elohim so that you see Judgment is being passed. This is what's coming. This is what has been decided by the court of heaven. So it's through this aspect of judgment, not through Yotevavke, okay? but it's through the uh, through the name of judgment. We'll see this here in the 20, 29th verse. You see the name. It is Yotevavke okay, here, but. It's still about judgment here. Sometimes Yudke Vovke is also said a different way. Even though it is spelled out Yudke Vovke, it's spoken Elohim. Just a second while I'm looking for something here. very interesting when that happens because it's it's the sphera of Bina of understanding that has the spelling Yudke Vavke 
but you don't say Yudke Vovke, you say Elohim. Now we're on the seventh chapter. Thereupon, Hashem said to Moshe, Lo, I have appointed you as a god for Paro, and your brother will be your prophet. So here is a whole new idea about what prophecy is about. Your brother will be your prophet. So he is saying, it's not like just an inspiration and the person has a say in it. It is directed that just like Hashem is telling Moshe exactly what to do and what to say, now we're going to see it in a human form played out as Moshe tells Aaron exactly what he's supposed to say and exactly what he's supposed to do. That the prophet is supposed to follow the directions that he's given by Shem exactly. It's not inspiration and he just writes a poem and he has himself in there. It's following the directions of Hashem or else. He has to follow those directions exactly, exactly. And so this is a, a real lesson to us right here because sometimes we misunderstand what that was all about, prophecy. So here he's giving a demonstration of what it's supposed to look like. The prophet has to be totally surrendered to Hashem's will in order to be the prophet. He has to completely surrender his own ego, his own self, in order to be the prophet. He can't be arrogant. He can't go, oh, look at me. He can't be like that. Or he won't be able to be the prophet. And Aaron was a very humble person. Moshe is a very humble person. He's so humble that he's arguing with Hashem that he's not fit to do this work. What, you know, choose somebody else. And Aaron is also very humble and he's able, excuse me, <clears throat> he's able to follow the directions of Hashem exactly. We're going to see later in a, in a Parsha that comes up later how humble and how surrender Aaron really is. That he doesn't, doesn't talk back to Hashem. He does not protest. He takes whatever Hashem gives him, good or bad, without protesting. You shall utter everything that I command you and your brother Aaron will utter it to Paro that he may let the sons of Israel go out of his land. And you see such a contrast here. Aaron and Moshe compared to Paro, who is the epitome of arrogance. And Aaron and Moshe are so humble. They're so surrendered to everything that Hashem tells them to do. And Paro hardens his heart. He hardens his, his whole being and says, No, I won't listen. No, I won't do it. Such a contrast we see here between these two examples. 
And here, Hashem says, I will harden Paro's heart and give many signs and convincing acts for me in the land of Mitzrayim. So we have to ask ourselves, if Hashem says, I'm going to harden Paro's heart, does this mean that Hashem is being unfair? Does it mean that Paro doesn't have a chance? That he might have repented if he had only been given a chance? But Hashem is being cruel somehow and, and um, stacking the deck against him? Does that, is that what it sounds like when he says, I will harden Paro's heart? What do you think? I think it's also a test for Moshe and the people. No, Hashem is judging. That's right. All of, both of those things are right. And when he says he will harden Paro's heart, there are three words in Hebrew that are used here. One is Chazak. Chazak means strong or solid. It means resistant resilient, resistant. So he's going to make Paro strong in, in his resolve. It's already Paro's resolve. It's already what's there. It's just going to strengthen that. And then he's going to make it kaved, heavy. He's going to make it difficult for him to be moved. It's in stages as he gives them a chance. You notice there are, there's going to be three words here and there are three groups of plagues. And each one of the plagues takes Paro further and further into these stages of the hardening of his heart. And then the last is Kashe, hard, where nothing can penetrate it. Nothing can move him. Nothing can penetrate his heart. No matter what happens. No matter what he sees going on. No matter what he sees his people going through. His country going through. Or even himself. That he will be so resolute. So stubborn. That nothing can break through that. But. It's not because. Hashem is making him different from the way he already is. Just the opposite. He's making him stronger in the way he already is. Paro is already this way. He's already made these decisions. When he decided to um, increase the slavery to make it harder, Hashem had not hardened his heart yet. When he decided to annihilate the children... Hashem had not hardened his heart yet. That was already there in him. And so now Hashem is saying to him, to Moshe actually, I'm going to push him. I'm going to push him. I'm going to press him down. 
until what's really in there is going to be right out for all the world to see it. It's not going to be a surprise to anyone. So that people can't say, Oh, poor Paro, he could have repented if only he had been given a chance. Yes, he was given a chance. More than one chance. He was given nine chances before it's too late. And we have to realize that the tenth plague is something completely different from the first nine. The first nine have um, an agenda, and then the tenth plague is of its own. So he's going to harden Paro's heart. Paro will not hearken to you, and I will turn my might against Mitzrayim. And I shall bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Mitzrayim, with great judgments. The Mitzrites will become aware that I am God. When I stretch out my hand over Egypt, and bring the sons of Israel out from their midst. See, it's not just enough that God is going to bring Israel out. That is part of the plan, yes. But it's also part of his plan that the people of Egypt will see that he is God. It's also for their sakes. Even though they're going to go through some terrible things, it's for their sakes that they can see the futility of their idolatry, and that they can see who is the true God, who is the creator of heaven and earth, who is truly sovereign over all the world. So it's for their sake too that he's doing this, even though they certainly don't think so because they're going to be miserable. The Mitzrites will become aware that I am God when I stretch out my hand over Mitzrayim and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Moshe and Aaron did this. As Hashem had commanded them, so did they do. And Moshe was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83 years old. When they spoke to Paro. And God said to Moshe and Aaron, When Paro will speak to you, saying, Prove yourself, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Paro, and it will turn into a crocodile. I know a lot of times we think this word is serpent. But it's not a serpent. It is a crocodile. Tanin. It's an aquatic monster. Not Nachash here. This is another mistranslation of the Torah that is very common. Commonly believed that that it was a serpent, that it was a snake, but it's not. It's a crocodile. There was um, in the book of Ezekiel, the 29th chapter and the third verse. Paro is actually called a great crocodile that lies in the midst of the rivers. This monster of the rivers that they idolized. So all of these plagues, everything that's going on here is speaking to their idolatry. One symbol after another, after another, after another. Hashem is showing the futility of it. And the first thing is going to be, well of course, the first thing was turning the Nile into blood. Because the Nile, they considered their life, the lifeline. 
So this staff was going to turn into a crocodile. Thereupon, Moshe and Aaron came to Paro, and they did as Hashem had commanded them. Aaron threw down his staff before Paro and before his servants, and it turned into a crocodile. Now notice, it's not Moshe's staff, it's Aaron's. Aaron's staff is thrown down, and it turns into a crocodile. But Paro called also called for the wise men and magicians, and they too, the hieroglyphics of Mitzrayim, did likewise with their sleight of hand. Each one of them threw down his staff, and they turned into crocodiles. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Paro's heart remained stubborn, and he did not hearken to them, just as Hashem had spoken. And Hashem said to Moshe, Paro's heart is difficult to move. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Paro in the morning. Lo, he goes out to the water so he can stand still where you will meet him on the bank of the river and take into your hand the staff, Moshe's staff, which was turned into a serpent. And here the word is Nachash. So, this, so Aaron's staff turned into a crocodile and, and Moshe's staff which he had at the burning bush now he's talking telling him to use his staff not Aaron's but his staff at the Nile and you shall say to him Yudhevoche Elohei of the Hebrews has sent me to you to say to you let my people go so they may serve me in the wilderness and lo you have not hearkened to me thus far this is what God has said by this you shall know that I am God lo I strike the water which is in the river with the staff that I have in my hand and it will be turned into blood the fish in the river will die the river will become putrid and the Mitzrites will go up drinking water from the river God said to Moshe say to Aaron take your staff and stretch it out stretch out your hand over the waters of Mitzrayim over the rivers over the streams their ponds and over every gathering of waters so that they will turn into blood so there will be blood in the land of Mitzrayim, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moshe and Aaron did so, as God commanded them. He waved the staff and struck the water that was in the river before the eyes of Paro and his servants, and all the water that was in the river turned into blood. And the fish in the river died so that the river became putrid, and the Mitzrites could not drink water from the river. Blood was in all the land of Mitzrayim. And the hieroglyphs of Mitzrayim did the same with their secret arts. And Paro's heart remained stubborn, and he did not hearken to them, just as God had said. Paro turned and went home, and did not even take this to heart. All the Mitzrites dug around the river for water to drink, but they could not drink from the waters of the river. Seven full days passed, before God had struck the after God had struck the river, 
And God said to Moshe, Go to Paro and say to him, This is what God has said. Let my people go so they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go, lo, I will strike all your territory with frogs. They will go up and come into your house, into your bedchamber, into your bed, into your house of your servants, among your people, in your ovens, in the kneading troughs. Indeed, the frogs will crawl upon you and upon your people and all your servants. So, when we were talking about these the last week when we were talking about the stages of the slavery and there were three stages there was alienhood where the people were made to feel that they did not belong then the slavery and then the affliction and so the three um, the three groups are going to fall into these categories. There's going to be alienhood that was made apparent through the blood, the uh, waters turning into blood, where here is their land, where they feel comfortable, and all of a sudden, this they can't, they don't have any water to drink. It's not like it's their land anymore. And then slavery frogs come, are going to come up and they're going to hop over everything so that the people who are supposed to be the masters of um, the earth are suddenly overrun by these tiny timid creatures who are just like hopping all over and they're not afraid of them and, and who is the master? Who do you think you are? And then the last one of this group is going to be uh, about the afflictions that the that the Egyptians put upon the people of Israel is going to be speaking to this and for this it was lice vermin kinim that would be on them so that they're itching and they're feeling miserable and what is this about we also see this in three other groups and if you got that um, email you can see the chart that I made there that you had three other ways that were made manifest here that Hashem is saying that he is God over the land and over the water and so over the water with the blood over the land with frogs and even over the air with the frogs, I mean with the uh, lice, he is sovereign over all of these areas. And then we're going to go to the next group that are of uh, plagues and it's where the beasts of the wilderness come into the houses and we'll be reading about that. And that's also under the heading of alienhood, how the people don't feel are made to feel like they're not belonging in their homes anymore because here come all these wild beasts into their houses and then this slavery that causes them to lose their animals through a plague where the animals, their livestock become sick and die and so it's, um, it's attacking their property their livestock and then on themselves 
they're afflicted by boils and blisters. So you can see that in the uh, in the email that I sent out. You can see how those things are laid out. Now we're on chapter eight. And God said to Moshe, "Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the ponds, that make frogs come up over the land of Mitzrayim." And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Mitzrayim, and frogs came up and covered the land of Mitzrayim. The hieroglyphs did all likewise with their secret arts, and they brought the frogs up on the land of Mitzrayim. So you have to ask yourself, so what was the deal? Were there not enough frogs, so they think that they're going to make more frogs? No. They saw Aaron doing certain motions with his hand, with his staff, and they thought, well, we'll imitate him, and maybe we can make the frogs go away. But instead of making the frogs go away, he caused more frogs. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about it. And these people, the hieroglyphs, the magicians of Egypt, were very, very powerful in the dark arts in black magic it said that Egypt was the master of black magic that there were no magicians who were more powerful had more wisdom in the arts of black magic than the Egyptians and they did have power when we read these story, this story about the exodus we see that they had power they were able to do these things. They were able to mimic these things that Aaron and Moshe were doing. And it didn't come as a surprise that they were able to do these things. So they made more frogs. And Paro sent for Moshe and Aaron and said, Entreat God to make the frogs depart from me and my people, and I will gladly let the people go so they may offer sacrifices to God. Thereupon Moshe replied to Paro, Seek a glory for yourself over me. For what time shall I entreat for you, for your servants and for your people, that the frogs should be destroyed from you and your houses? They shall remain only in the river. He said, For tomorrow. And he replied, Let it be as you have spoken, so that you may know that there is no one equal to God, our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and from your servants and from your people. They will remain only in the river. So Moshe is adding another um, another aspect to this thing. That it's not like I'm going to just make them go away whenever because that could be like they just decided to go away whenever. He's saying, no, I'm going to make it where you're going to know it was the hand of God by giving you a time and you're going to even pick the time and I'll do it exactly at the time you say and each time when Moshe would do this he would go outside of the city to pray to Hashem because he didn't pray in the city where all these idols were he prayed outside and then the plague was ended and each one of these plagues and you know we go through it and it looks like it's just like one right after another but it's not 
like in the begin, the first plague of the blood, it says it was for seven days, and then it ended. It was like a month that they had that plague, and it ended, gave Paro and his people time to recover, time to forget it a little bit. Are you going to repent? And then when they said no, here came the next one. So it was a month for each one. So we're looking at like a year that these plagues, uh, 10 months, a year between the time that Moshe came back to Egypt and the Exodus. And Moshe and Aaron went away from Paro. And Moshe cried out to God concerning the word regarding the frogs which he stated to Paro. And God did according to the word of Moshe. The frogs died out of the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Paro saw that relief had come, and that his heart had regained obduracy, he did not hearken to them. It was as God had foretold it. God said to Moshe, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the land, and it will turn into vermin in all the land of Mitzrayim. And they did this. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the land, and there was vermin on man and beast. All the dust of the land became vermin in all the land of Mitzrayim. So this vermin, you know, if you've ever had, you know, like uh, mosquito bites or if you've ever had lice, I mean, I don't know. But the lice weren't just a little bit. It was all over them and biting them. It was miserable. I mean, just think about when you really have a terrible itch, how it makes you feel like you could just lose your mind because it's so horrible. And so the people, the Egyptians were really suffering. This was affliction. The frogs were about the slavery. This was about the affliction, where they were physically really suffering. Even Paro, he he was covered with lice. All of them were covered with lice all over themselves. The hieroglyphs also did this with their secret arts to make the vermin go away, but they could not do it. See here, they were trying to get rid of them, just like they were it didn't make it real clear with the frogs but they were trying to get rid of them they weren't trying to make more but more came instead of less but in this time they couldn't do it they couldn't make them go away and they couldn't make more they couldn't do anything and the vermin remained on man and beast and the hieroglyph said to Paro this is the finger of God see the servants could see and you'll see how there were other times where the people of Egypt did see they were being moved. Paro wasn't being moved, but the people of Egypt were being moved. And Paro wasn't being moved even though he knew it. He knew this was the hand of God. He knew it. But he wasn't moved. He was still being abjurant. His heart remained abjurant. And he did not hearken to them, just as God had said. God said to Moshe, Rise up early in the morning and place yourself before Paro. Lo, he goes out to the water and say to him, 
This is what God has said. Let my people go so they may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, I will let loose the beasts of the wilderness upon you, upon your servants, upon your people, upon your homes. The houses of Mitzrayim will be full of beasts of the wilderness. And so will even the ground on which they are. But the land of Goshen, upon which my people stand, I shall miraculously set apart on that day, so that no beast of the wilderness will come here, so that you may know that I, God, am in the midst of the earth. I will set redemption between my people and your people. This sign shall take place tomorrow. Now, the whole the idea about these beasts, the beasts of the field, is that mankind had been given this superior place over the, over the animals. Man was the master of the world, not the beast. And all of a sudden, here, Hashem pulls that away, this fear of man that had been put inside the animals after they came out of the ark. He takes that away. And suddenly, they're brave, and they don't fear man at all. And they walk all over his home. And God did so. The beasts of the wilderness came in heavy numbers into the house of Pyro, into the house of his servants. And in all the land of Mitzrayim, the land was going to ruin because of the beasts of the wilderness. And Pyro called to Moshe and Aaron and said, Go offer sacrifices to your God in the land. Moshe replied, It is not possible to do that because what we offer up to God, our God, is Mitzrayim's abomination. See, could we offer up that which Mitzrayim abominates before their eyes and not have them stone us? And you notice too that whenever the brothers came into Egypt, that Yosef warned them about talking about being shepherds, because this was just like, whoa, they did not, uh, they... They had a God that was a sheep. And so they didn't, they didn't take well to that. We will make three days journey into the wilderness and offer sacrifices to God, our God, as he will tell us. Thereupon, Paro replied, I will let you go and you will offer sacrifices to God, your God, in the wilderness. Only do not go too far away. Entreat for me. And Moshe said, See, I will go away from you and I will entreat God and the beasts of the wilderness will depart from Paro and from his servants and his people tomorrow. Only let Paro not tease anymore in not letting the people go after all to offer sacrifices to God. Moshe went away from Paro and entreated God and God did according to the word of Moshe. He made the beasts of the wilderness depart from Paro and his servants and from his people not one remained. But this time too, God made his heart, Paro made his heart obdurant and did not let the people go. So Paro is very um, taking part in this hardening of his heart. He's going, it, it suits him just fine because it's the way he feels anyway. And you see this. Where over and over, it's Paro made his heart hard. In spite of the fact that in the beginning, we are told that Hashem hardens his heart. We see here, 
Over and over after each one of the plagues, Paro hardens his heart. So he is participating in it with him. Hashem is not causing him to feel anything he doesn't already feel. He's not act, causing him to act in any way that he doesn't already want to act that way. You see, he's not going against Paro's will. He is not. Paro is still acting within his free will, but Hashem is just shoring him up and just making him more along, um, entrenched in that way of thinking. And he's not... Paro is not being moved by anything that he sees except while he's going through it. Then after he, the relief comes he changes his mind. And God said to Moshe go to Paro and speak to him saying this is what God the God of the Hebrews has said let my people go so they may serve me for if you refuse to let them go and will still hold them as your property. Then lo, the hand of God will be upon your property that you have in the field, upon horses and upon donkeys and camels and upon cattle and sheep in the very severe plague. So here he is, this is speaking to the slavery where the people of Israel have been the property of Egypt. And so now Hashem is saying, now I'm going to put my hand on your property, on your cattle. And God will make a miraculously sharp division between the property of Israel and the property of Mitzrayim. Not the least of which of what belongs to the sons of Israel will die. God has set a fixed time. Tomorrow God will fulfill this word in the land. God has fulfilled God fulfilled this word the next day. All the property of Mitzrayim died, but of all the property of the sons of Israel not one died. And Paro sent and lo of all the property of Israel not one had died. Nevertheless, Paro's heart remained immovable, and he did not let the people go. Thereupon God said to Moshe and Aaron, Take both your hands full of soot from the lime kiln and let Moshe throw it towards heaven before Paro's eyes. And it shall become dust all over all the land of Mitzrayim and it will turn into a rash breaking out into blisters or boils in man and beast in all the land of Mitzrayim. They took soot from the lime kiln and placed themselves before Paro. Moshe threw it toward heaven and then an inflammatory rash of blisters was over man and beast. The hieroglyphs could not stand up before Moshe because of the rash for the rash was upon the hieroglyphs and upon all Mitzrayim. The guide let Paro's heart be obdurate and he did not hearken to them just as God had said to Moshe. And God said to Moshe, Rise up early in the morning and place yourself before Paro and say to him, This is what God, the God of the Hebrews, has said, Let my people go so they may serve me. For this time I will send all of my plagues into your heart, to your servants, to your people, so they may know there is none like me on all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand I could have stricken you and your people with a plague 
and you would have been annihilated from the earth. But for this very reason I have permitted you to stand in order that you shall see my strength and thus let my name tell my name over all the earth. So here is he's saying the reason. It's he doesn't want to annihilate Egypt. It's not like Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't want to wipe them out. He wants them to know he is Hashem. He is God. He is the creator. That there is none like him in heaven and earth. He alone. This is, I mean, we're seeing these horrible things happen to them. That they're suffering and all this. But yet, you can see here that this is a mercy. That he's appealing to their hearts. He's appealing to their souls. That he's saying, I'm not giving up on you. I am not going to just wipe you out. I want you to understand who I am. And he says it straight out here. And not only them, but that they will tell his name in all the earth. The Mitzrites, the Egyptians. You shall exalt yourself very high above my people and not letting them go. Lo, tomorrow at this time I will cause very severe hail to rain down such as there has never been in its rhyme even if you go back to the day when it was founded from small beginnings until now Egypt is a land that is desert it has the Nile that's how they have water but it never has seen snow or hail or anything like that a little bit of rain maybe sometimes in the winter but not much they don't get much precipitation. And now Hashem is saying, I'm going to send this hail. And this hail is not going to be like hail like we know it. This is a different kind of hail. It's ice and it has fire in it. It's fire and ice together. So here, this is specially prepared in a place in heaven. And there are three parts of this special hail. And the first part is going to fall here in Egypt. And we're going to talk about in a minute where the other parts fall. And now you send, and now send, let your property and everything that you have in the fields take refuge. So he's giving them a chance. He's warning the Egyptians. You've seen all of these things happening so far. Now we're going to give you a chance to not suffer from this. If you're believing in Hashem that He is causing all of these things, you're going to have a chance to take refuge. Every man and beast that will be found in the field and will not be brought home, the hail will come down on them and they will die. Now whoever feared the word of God among Pyro's servants made his servants and his property flee into the houses. So there were people who listened. There were people who paid attention. Because all of these things had happened. And Hashem, so this is, this is saying, the hail was a little bit different from the other um, plagues. Because here they were getting a warning. Here they were giving the reason why it was happening to them. That there was hope in this. It wasn't just, I'm going to wipe you out. Because if he was just going to wipe them out, he could have sent fire from heaven, just like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah. An end of story. But it's not that kind of a thing. He's giving them a chance. And with the hail, we really see that chance. Whoever did not take the word of God to heart 
left his servants and property in the field. And God said to Moshe, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, so there will be hail upon all the land of Mitzrayim, upon man and beast, upon every herb of the field in the land of Mitzrayim. And Moshe stretched out his staff toward the sky, and God had already sent thunder and hail, and continuous fire ran down to the ground. God caused hail to rain upon the land of Mitzrayim. So this was hail and fire together. The fire wasn't going to melt the ice. It was fire and ice together. There was hail and fire self-contained in the midst of the hail. It was very severe. The like had never been seen in the land of Mitzrayim since it had become a nation. In all the land of Mitzrayim, hail struck down everything that was in the field, from man to beast. And the hail struck down every herb of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. And Paro sent and called for Moshe and Aaron and said to them, Now I have sinned. God is the righteous one, and I and my people, we are guilty ones. Entreat God... He is the master, and he should let that he should let this God proclaiming thunder and hail be no more. Then I will gladly let you go, and you shall no longer stay. Moshe replied to him, As soon as I have gone out from the city, I will spread out my hands to God. The thunderclaps will cease, and the hail will be no more, so that you may know that the earth is God's. Each one of these things is a message. But as for you and your servants, I know that you are still far from fearing God. For though the flax and the barley were struck down because the barley was already upon the stalk and the flax was on the stalk, neither the wheat nor the spelt was struck down because they ripened late. Moshe went away from Paro out of the city spread out his hands toward God and thunderclaps and hail ceased neither did the rain pour down on the ground when Paro saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased he continued to sin and made his heart immovable he made it heavy kaved he and his servants Paro's heart remained obdurant kashe kazak strong rather and he did not let the sons of Israel go as God had spoken through Moshe. So here we have the first part of this hail fell down in Egypt. And then there were two other parts. The next part fell down when in um, the war, when Joshua was fighting the war against the Canaanites. This hail fell down. And there's a third part that has not fallen yet that's still in the heavens is hanging there waiting waiting and do you know when it's meant when it's meant to fall it's meant to fall during the war of Gog and Magog so that's the third part of the hail so does anybody have any comments or questions this is a very, very exciting story as we go through the plagues and we understand how Hashem is working 
on people's hearts how he's turning toward the Egyptians in this way is typing one of the plagues was killing the property the animals of the Egyptians and later they had animals to rescue from the hail. What gives? Okay, yeah, that is a really good question. So evidently it was not all of the animals that were killed by the plagues. It was some of the animals, and then they had animals to save from the hail. Right. And also you have the uh, Egyptians at the end with the horses going in the... Um, the horses going pulling the chariots now one of the things that we could say is that the Egyptians animals were killed by the plague and then they got other animals from the people of Israel that's a possibility because remember that none of the property none of the um, the the people of Israel are not being affected when the Egyptians have no water when everything is blood the people of Israel have water the people of Israel aren't struck by the hail the animals, the wild animals don't come into their homes the frogs don't come into their homes they're not eaten by lice none of these things happen to the people of Israel and so we can say that the Egyptians then turned to the people of Israel to replace what they lost. That's, that makes sense there. And then when they, um, then they're given the chance of not losing those animals by being told, take them out, take them into your barns. Um, I think that at this point in time it, the question is so the Egyptians took from the people or bought from them I think that at this time a lot of the Egyptians were probably inclined to um, look at the people of Israel a little bit differently and we could say that they probably were inclined to have bought them and the reason I would say this is because Moshe then gives them the warning so that they don't lose those animals and if they had just taken them I'm not sure that warning would have been there I mean that kind of makes sense to me and maybe the people that just and maybe some of the people did just take them and 
those people would probably be the ones who didn't care and left them out in the field and didn't believe that the hail was coming. So we could kind of see two kind of mentalities going on here with the Egyptians. So it's possible that some of the Egyptians just took them and some of the Egyptians bought them. So in this so in a way this was a means Hashem used to enrich the people before they left. That is also that's also a possibility. That makes sense. And it's good that you're thinking about that too because I have that thought also wondering about that. And so when we're also when we're thinking about the Egyptians chasing after the people of Israel and they have horses to pull their chariots um, we would have to say they obviously have put those horses into the stables With the whole scenario, though, we do see, even though it doesn't say it straight out, you can see it between the lines. You can see it behind the story that there had to be an interaction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt of things going on here while the plagues were happening. I'm sure that when the water, when the um, waters of the Nile and all the Egyptians' water turned to blood that they also tried to buy water from the people of Israel because they saw that their water was still water. And for each time that one of these plagues happened, it was supposed to be obvious to the Egyptians that there was a difference being drawn between them and the people of Israel. So they had to be seeing this. It had to be, you know, that they were exposed to it. Otherwise, they would think, well, the Israelites were being affected in the same way. And Shem wanted them to see, no, I can make a difference between you and them. And that was another way of seeing that it was not a natural phenomenon. That it was definitely something from heaven. Okay, next week's Parsha is Bo, and Bo means come, or it's come out, or here I think that it's used as, uh, like go out, or come out. So if we don't have any more questions... Or comments? So if you would like to get this article on Serach, can everybody see the address here of this website where it's uh, found? And you can... 
go to that and you can print it off if you would like. Or I'll do this. That's the address where you can find the article on Sarah. Okay, great. And God willing, I'm going to be writing on each Parsha, so I'll be um, sending those to you. Um, I want to say that there, to the people who are new in the class, that when I first started this class, I was talking about how to set up a notebook for keeping all of your notes as you go through the years of Torah study that you'll get a loose leaf notebook and you'll get dividers on which you'll put tabs for each one of the names of the Parshot there are 52 Parshot that you'll get tabs for those and then as you go through the year you can keep notes on it things that you think of you can write something yourself and put them into this notebook and, and you'll go through your setting the Torah year after year and you can refer back to those notes and you can see your own progress of how far you've come in your perceptions in the way you think about um, the Torah your ideas and you'll build on it like that and it'll it's a good way to keep a record of it and so um Great. I'm glad that you like that, Debbie, the chart. And so I hope that you're going to use these things that I will send you. And the Zerat Hashem, I'll be sending you one, I hope, every week. But I can't promise that because things happen. And, um, and build your own notebook and add to that with things that you yourself think of and you write. For instance, You'll notice that the calendar, the Hebrew calendar, um, has a Parsha for each week, for each Shabbat. And during that week, you might notice in the news certain things happening. And you can see how, interestingly, they are linked to or they have um, something in the Parsha for that week can be talking about that very thing that's going on in the news or going on in your life. This is something very worthwhile to notate and put into that notebook in that section. Put the date, the year, so that you can keep that. And those things are very worthwhile to um, have. You'll really treasure it as the years go by. And that's one of the one of the best tools for studying Torah, I find. You can um, collect teachings from other people and put them into these sections. And we had a really good turnout. I was glad to see all of you in um, Anna Roth's class. I was, she, her class was really wonderful. 
don't we have just one more week of your two-hour Torah studies? Well, the thing is, um, I'm going to have to find out exactly when Doug is going to be Doug Taylor is going to be starting his class, and we're going to continue with the two-hour studies until he begins. And so I need to look at that on the schedule. And um, I'm hoping that we will get through, at least get through the Exodus. And that's Bo, this next one. And then Bashelach, that's the crossing of the sea. Another thing that might be very interesting to you is... Um, my well I'll just tell you like this my birthday is January 30th but when I was born in 1955 that fell out on the 7th day of the month of Shvat and at that time the, the reading on the 7th of Shvat and usually most years is the reading of the Shelach and so that is my birthday Parsha is the Shelach so if you know, you know, well, of course you know what day you were born, uh, what day, what year. If you would like some help with that to find out what your Hebrew birthday is and what your birthday Parsha is, you would like to find that out, you can write me an email and I'll look that up for you. I'll tell you what your Hebrew birthday is and I'll tell you what the Parsha was when you were born. And that might be something else that could mean a lot to you. You would like to do that. It has a lot of significance. The Parsha that's being read when your soul came into the world. I think it's extraordinarily significant. So, anyway, if you would like to, I think all of you have my email now since I sent you out the uh, the Devar Torah. And you can write to me and send me your birthday and I'll look it up for you. Does anybody else have something to add to the class? Okay, then I think we're going to close for tonight. And like I said, to next week is Parshat Bow. And of course, um, we have other classes through the week. And I look forward to seeing all of you there. <laughs>